Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19? Acts chapter 19. And as you're turning there, I I want to tell you a story about a um, man who was working on a college campus, and he got a text stating that there was an active shooter um, on the campus. And he was kind of dumbfounded. He said, this, this can't be the case. So he, he reached out to a couple of friends just to make sure that um, this text was true. And it, uh, they confirmed, the friend confirmed that the text was, in, in, as was legitimate. And so what he does is now he starts to receive text from his, his children's school. His children's school was very close to the college campus, and his heart rate, heart rate is going up, his anxiety, his stress, it's feeling oh so surreal, he says. And so now he reaches his child, and he gets his child, and he hugs his child, and he says, thank God, and he brings his child away, and he hears of the police officers coming to the campus and the SWAT teams that are coming there to take care of this active shooter. A little bit later on, it is found that this active shooter was not a reality. It was, it was a hoax. It was a, um, it was a rumor. And the rumor had started, and all of the emotion and all of the um, activity that was happening during the time was connected to this rumor. And I wonder how you would have felt if you were in the same situation. Well, how would have I felt? Because I, I teach on a, uh, at a college. How would I feel if all of a sudden I hear that there's this active shooter that is there? What would go through my mind? What would go through my heart? What would go through my life? There's this book that um, is written by uh, an author, and it's called The Madness of Crowds. Now, I, I will say up front that the, the author is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he, he makes a number of very strong points about what happens when a crowd starts to believe thoughts and come together. And he was saying this, is that we are living in a time where we people are behaving in increasingly herd-like mentality. Uh, There's this crowd derangement, he called it. Whether it's public or private, whether it's online or off, people are behaving in increasingly irrational, feverish, herd-like, and simply unpleasant ways. I think that's a pretty much an understatement today. You know, you really can't go on Facebook or any social media without seeing dissenting opinions and people on both sides of the aisle. And even with the issue of COVID, mask or no mask, coming to church or not coming to church, there has been this vitriol back and forth, whether it's race relations, whether it's the sexual revolution that is apparently happening, there is fights all over the place. And life has become polarized, tribalized. And so when we think in this grand, when we think in this way, he was saying that the primary reason why he believes that we are finding ourselves thinking like herds is that we've lost a grand narrative, which I thought was interesting. This grand narrative, a grand story that used to hold us all together has now been replaced. It's been replaced by other narratives that are coming in to fill the void. When, when you attack the grand narrative like Christianity, and when you look at the grand narrative of Christianity and say it is oppressive, and when you demean it and take it out of the culture, what inevitably is going to happen is that you have to fill it with something else. 
Humanity needs a story. Humanity needs a narrative. Humanity needs something to follow after. Well, today, the grand narrative has been replaced with things like social justice or, or identity politics or the like. And so now what we do is we see each other not as one large group, as we see as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see ourselves as separate groups. We see ourselves in identity ways. We see ourselves in racial ways. We see ourselves in political ways. We will even see ourselves in mask ways. Wear a mask or not wear a mask. You will polarize into different groups. There's only one narrative that will bring people together. There's only one narrative, there's only one story that will ever bring divergent people, diverse people, into a unified group, and it's the story of the gospel. Every other story will divide, and that is what we are seeing today. I want you to think about this. I entitled this message for such a time as this, and you may be familiar with that. That comes from Queen Esther and the story of Queen Esther and her life. And this young lady is in this Persian empire, and she is having to live a life in the midst of this Persian empire and trying to figure out how she can continue to live in a way that is going to honor God. And the culture that is around her is looking to destroy her people. And she has to make a stand. And her um, uncle or cousin, whatever his uh, like is, he is going to say to her that perhaps you've come to this place for such a time as this. And I want you to think about that. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are here today to live in such a way in this world, in the midst of the confusion and the chaos of this world, we should have a grand narrative that moves us forward. The fear is that today that uh, we as believers are following the narratives of the culture rather than the narratives of the Bible. And so when you start to see yourself first and foremost as a black person or as a female or as whatever, and you see yourself first and foremost in those identity issues, and you do not see yourself first and foremost as a Christian, a follower of God, you've separated yourself. And it creates these struggles that happen in this world, and we we go through this idea, and people need an identity. People need a voice to follow. And what we have today in our culture is the insanity of our culture. If you really just think about the things that are led in our culture, abortion. How is it in one state where they will take the life of a baby in the womb, that same baby is now going to be viewed as a life if the mother is murdered and the baby is murdered at the same time? It's insanity. Gender fluidity is insanity. I, as a black man, must vote a certain way is insanity. If I dare say that all lives matter, that means I'm a racist because I'm going against black lives matter. It's insanity. There are some bad police officers, there's no doubt. But to say that all police officers are evil is missing a point. Because if you've seen what is happening in some cultures today where they have reduced their police officers, now what has come in to that vacuum 
people that have taken over. Rioting and looting will get me value from other people. It will not. It's interesting that we prejudge other people, right? We cannot stand it, I cannot stand it, when I'm prejudged because of the color of my skin. But am I any better if I prejudge you because of the color of your skin or the, color of your, or the amount of your bank account or the car that you drive or the church that you go to? One prejudice does not remove another. See, the problem in our society today is it's, it's been always the problem. We're good at identifying issues, but we are really bad at finding solutions because there's only one solution, it's Christ. It's found in the gospel. So when we, when we hurt and harm one another, and we actually think that's going to get us to have people stop hurting and harming us, we're missing it. It's insanity. In Acts chapter 19, it's an interesting um, story of what was happening to Paul at Ephesus. Turn there with me. And I will tell you that um, I, I will encourage you to grab an article by um, uh, Greg Morse found from Desiring God. So I'm going to grab some of his points from his article here. And he calls it a loan against a mob. And if you remember, the Apostle Paul here in Ephesus, if you remember the story, he is there in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they were a bunch of pagan worshipers in this place. And there were some protests that were happening at this time because Paul was speaking a good news of the gospel there in the place and, and people were getting upset. I don't want you to think this, that, that coming together as a group is not always wrong. We're coming together as a group today. And as we come together as a group, hopefully we're going to do this in a peaceful way, hopefully we do it in a loving way, in a gracious way. Coming together as a group is not an issue when you have the right narrative. But coming together as a group, when you have the wrong narrative, will create a problem. Scripture tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. And, and when he, I, I like this line in here, he says, bad company, when, when a company can make good corrupt and bad even worse, which is interesting. And so as, as he was coming against this mob, Paul is in Acts chapter 19, and it says this in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, Christianity, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Let me give you the backstory of what's happening. Um, there is this goddess... Artemis, a goddess of fertility, and what they would do is um, several times a year they would come together and worship this god, Artemis. And Demetrius apparently would make these craft, these things that would be sold so that they could use this during this time. And so as Paul goes in and says, in essence, there is no Artemis, there is no god but one, his business is now being, intact, uh, is, uh, being attacked. And so what Demetrius does as an instigator is that he starts to get together a group. Look in verse 25. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades, and he starts to speak to them. He speaks to them in this way. He says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And what he's doing is he's starting to persuade them with his conversation. Well, in essence, that's exactly what happens with a group. You will have somebody that will get a group together, and then you will have somebody that will speak to that group and persuade them. 
He's giving them a narrative. He's giving them a story. He, in essence, says that this man is coming in and he's going to impact our business. But in essence, he is actually impacting our religion. Now, in essence, Demetrius was only worried about his pocketbook. But what he does is he gets this narrative going that you're being oppressed, that you're being offended, you're being taken advantage of. And so now what he's doing is he's churning up emotion. I find it interesting in verse 28, it says this, when they heard that this... Uh, that they were enraged. The crowd that was together is now getting enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the, the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together to the theater, dragging out with them Gaius and Aristarchus. These were friends of Paul. And so what do you see is this crowd is coming together, and then there's this slogan that is being used over and over again, Great is Artemis, Great is Artemis, Great is Artemis, this general slogan. Unspecified, unspecified grievances, it's vague purpose. There's no real solution, but it's only destruction. We are going to go in and destroy. As the crowd goes together. Morris makes an interesting point in verse 32. It says, now some cried out one thing and some cried out another. For the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together clueless once again if you go into some groups today and you just walk around and ask questions you will find oftentimes that they don't know why they're there or they have a a basic slogan but they have never really thought deeply about the beliefs that are underlying it it creates a problem watch the cancel culture come out here in verse 33 and 34 Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who was a Jew. Now, uh, Alexander, in all likelihood, is not a believer. He is being put up there to try to calm down this crowd. And Alexander gets up there, and he's motioning with his hands and wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But then they recognize that he was what? A what? A Jew. Hmm. And for about two hours, they cry out, Great is Artemis! The Ephesians, over and over again. They are drowning out Alexander. They don't want to have a debate. They do not want to have a conversation. They are canceling out Alexander here. Does that sound familiar today? Then all of a sudden a man gets up, a clerk in the city, one just man, and he tries to quiet the crowd. He says, be quiet, don't be rash. He says that I look at Paul And Paul seems innocent to me. He's not doing anything wrong. And if you have a grievance, take it to the proper authorities. And he says that this rioting today started by Demetrius. And Demetrius, you have some impure motives why you're allowing this crowd to happen. The anatomy of a riot, an anatomy of a riot, we have an instigator, we have clueless people, we have a cancel culture. And we need somebody to speak. We need somebody to speak. I want you to know this, that there is really only one message that will conquer the insanity of this day. One message is the insanity of Christian gospel. The insanity of Christian love. That there is a message of hope for oppression. There's a message of hope for those who have been disadvantaged. There's a message of hope for those who have been devalued. The message of hope is that the God of all creation sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rescue you. 
and then to bring you into community. That's the message. What we need today is this. Martin Luther said, uh, as he's in the Diet of Worms, um, he is saying this, unless I'm convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot, I will not recant. Here I stand. I could do no other. God help me. Now, when he made this statement, you know, it sounds a whole lot stronger. It took him a couple of days, and he was really struggling with this. But he came to this point that the gospel had to be the dividing line in his life. He also said later, if we profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every truth about God except that which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, we are not professing Christ, however boldly we may be confessing Christ. For where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. What he meant by that is this. I can get into this pulpit and Doug and Tim and I can get into this pulpit, but if we do not speak to the struggles that are happening, if we just speak mumbo-jumbo, hopefully we don't do that. But if we don't speak to the truth of the gospel, and if we do not speak to the truth of the gospel as applied to our society today, then we're We're nothing. It's at this moment, in this battle, as I look at young people that are around here who are being indoctrinated by this world. You need to be indoctrinated by the Bible and by his gospel. Because if you're not, whoever has your ear has your mind. Whoever has your mind has your heart. And whoever has your heart has you. You choose. Crowds are interesting. Crowds have been there since the very beginning, right? If you think about it, in Genesis, we have the Tower of Babel. These people are coming together in a crowd. I'm going to do this. We're going to get to God. Joseph's brothers, his brothers come around, and they think of ways to kill him and take advantage of him as a crowd. We have crowds there at, um, at the golden calf as these crowds of people are coming together worshiping this golden calf that this golden calf has taken us out of Egypt. Such a lie. Or how about the crowd that was there on Sunday that was saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and they're throwing down their palm branches and only days later that same crowd is saying, crucify him. Crucify him. Sometimes you can't trust a crowd. So what makes our crowd different? Our crowd is different because we have a grand narrative. And that grand narrative helps to bring us together. In Acts chapter 17, there was a group called the Bereans. And the Bereans were, of Thessalonians, were of a nobler character. That when Paul wrote, and when Paul was speaking, they wrote down what Paul said, hopefully as you're doing that this morning, And then you go back to Scripture to compare what I am saying to make sure that what I am saying lines up with Scripture. And if it doesn't, forget me. But if it does, it's not coming from me. It's coming from God. So that's the problem with emotions. Emotions are these wonderful gifts that God has given us. And and these emotions um, 
fuel so many wonderful things. They fuel the, the greatest joys in my life. I can think of the, some of the greatest times in my life have been connected to emotions, but also some of those painful times have been connected to emotions. But because we are sinful human beings, our emotions can be corrupted by our sin. That is why we need something that's going to anchor us. We cannot be emotionally driven people. We need to be expositionally driven people. That the word needs to be the driving force, not my emotions. My emotions may be my gauge, but it is not a guide. I think I've used this illustration with you before, that my emotions are kind of like the light on the dashboard of my car. The light comes on, and it says gas. Well, what do I do? I interpret the light, and I go back, and I fill my tank, my car with gas, and the light goes off. The tire pressure light comes on. Then what do I do? I recognize I need to put air in the tires. Emotions are kind of like that. They're a gauge, not a guide. Not a guide. But today we have found ourselves guided by our emotions. Is this new? No, it's not new. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Because Paul knew that there was a grand narrative that he wanted to share with the world. Have you ever found yourself at a place where you really wanted to do something and it seemed like God had prevented you from doing it? And Paul really wanted to go to Rome and be with the Romans. And he really wanted to be there that he could share with them. And he had heard so many things. He had planted the church there. And he, he was so excited to go back. And Paul was being hindered by God. And God said, no, you're not going. And that's why we have the book of Romans. That God in his sovereignty hindered Paul from going to Rome. And then he gave us this wonderful book of Romans. We probably would not have had this book if Paul had gotten his answer. There's a thesis statement in Romans, and if you have never studied the book of Romans, it's a great book. And the thesis statement of Romans is found in verses 16 and 17. Paul is saying, okay, I want to give you my ultimate thesis statement of Christianity before we get started, and then I'm going to argue it out through the rest of the book. And here's the thesis statement. I am not ashamed of what? I can't hear you. I am not ashamed of the what? The gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. See, every other religion in this world wants you to live by works and the things that you do. Christianity is the only religion in this world that speaks of the God of that religion doing it for you. And we live by faith. But then Paul tells us what the grand narrative is. He says, here's the, here's the thesis statement, but then he tells us the grand narrative. And as I read this section, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to consider how much of what I'm going to read here is the culture that we are struggling with today. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of this world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Let me stop there for a moment. 
in, in theology, we talk about these uh, different types of revelation. And one type of revelation, we call it general revelation. And general revelation is, is what God has revealed about himself in creation, and then what God has revealed about himself in conscience. We'll see that in chapter 2, verse 15. That every single person, whether they have ever come into a church or whether they have ever read the Bible, knows from creation that there is a God and knows in their very heart the law has been stamped in their heart. There is the truth that God has revealed himself to us. And revealed means to uncover, to make known, to bring to light. That's what God has done for us. But humanity has, has seen this revealed light in creation, seen this revealed light in conscience, and what do they do? They stamp it down. They suppress the truth. It's kind of like taking a cigarette butt and pushing it under your foot. They're stamping down the truth. And it says the wrath of God, I know this is uncomfortable, but the wrath of God is this settled, determined indignation of God. It's not, emotion, it's not overly emotional. It's the fact that he is, hates sin. He hates anything that goes against him and his word, against his holy level. Anything that is towards evil, God is holy and he hates evil. His holiness cannot tolerate unholiness. He talks about ungodliness here. Ungodliness refers to a lack of reverence. There is this sense where we do not worship God and unrighteousness is the acts that come out of that. So there's an ungodliness of heart and then there's actions that are unrighteous. He says, for all they, look at verse 21, for although they knew God through creation and conscience, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They refuse to glorify God. Why we are here, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you do not glorify God, what you will end up doing is glorifying something else, usually yourself. They refuse to glorify God, and then they gave no thanks to him. They had no gratitude in their hearts and lives. And as the cycle continues, you can see here, and they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, don't you see it today? If you even come up with an opposing viewpoint today, you are viewed as foolish and ignorant. See, they, they profess to be wise, but they're actually fools. And they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and animals and birds and creeping things. Instead of worshiping the creator, we become worshipers of creation. We are darkened on our hearts. We reject the truth. We believe lies. We become callous in our hearts, morally insensitive. And we go to false worship. Verse 24, God gives them up. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. False worship comes in. The sexual revolution comes in. They worship things of this world more than they worship God. And God gives them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For women exchanged their natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with other men and receiving in them the due penalty for their error. 
They've gone from idolatry to sexual perversion to debased minds. Look, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They were gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty. I lost my line. <laughs> Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, faithless, foolish, heartless, ruthless. For although they did not know God, for then they knew God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things and deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those that practice them, group mentality. I thought you were supposed to be giving me good news, James. You can't understand the good news without the bad news. The bad news is this, that we have a heart of rebellion and we sin against one another. We sin against God. We sin in our pride. We're constantly creating new ways of evil. And in doing so, he uses those four phrases. Did you see it? Senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Senseless means without understanding in a fuller translation. Faithless means that they break the faith. Heartless means that they are doing it without natural affection and ruthless is the Greek word that connects to without mercy. See, we do really have a problem. And there are major issues in our world today, but there is an answer that I want to spend some time with over the next couple of weeks. And the answer is found in the good news of the gospel. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And what God has given us is a real grand narrative that, yes, you're a sinner. And yes, you were under my wrath, but, but I've done something amazing for you. I have given you a real identity. Instead of your identity being these culturally made and human made identities, I want you to know what your true identity is, who you really are and whose you really are. That's what he does. I often ask my, question, my clients these seven questions. And I say, I really want you to try to have a good sense of being able to answer these seven questions. And the first question is this. It's the identity question. Who are you? How do you answer that today? My second grouping of questions is this. Intentionality. Why are you here? Why has God allowed for you to be here at this moment in time? You need to be able to answer that question. The third question is difficulty. What is my problem? Now, this is the issue today. Most people tend to believe that their problem is outward rather than inward. It's you rather than me. The reality is that I am my greatest problem. I am a sinner. There are people that sin against me, there's no doubt. But I am my worst enemy, and the flesh is my worst enemy. So identity, who am I? Intentionality, why am I here? Difficulty, what's my problem? Destiny, where are you going? Where is the final analysis? Where are you taking? Where is this road taking you? You need to know where you're going. I know where I'm going. If I take my last breath right now, if the ceiling falls on me right now, I take my last breath here and I am with my Savior in heaven. I know that for certain. Do you know where you're going? 
And then I asked them these two questions, veracity and morality. What is true and what is right? See, we need to know what is true. True cannot be ginned up by a crowd that's around. Truth must come down to reality. And when you lose God, you lose the word. And when you lose the word, you lose reality. And then you need to know morality. What is right? How do I act? But here's the key question I usually ask my clients. So why am I here? Uh, Who am I? Why am I here? Uh, What's my problem? Where am I going? What is true? What is right? But then here's the last one. Is Christ enough? That's the issue. And Paul was able to say, yeah, he is. Look here in Ephesians 1. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of this world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have been received the redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire the possession of its praise to his glory. I want you to hear who you are. Who you are is not um, identity politics. Who you are is not intersectionality. Who you are is you're a believer. You, You have been redeemed by God. You have been chosen by God. You have been blessed by God. You have been forgiven by God. You've been lavished wisdom and grace upon God. You have an inheritance by God. You've been sealed by God. You've been guaranteed that inheritance by God. That is who you are. That's why Peter could say, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You need to know who you are. You need to know that you are a sinner. He says that in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now at work in the sense of disobedience among whom you once lived in your passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body in mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What he was saying is this, you're a sinner. All of us are. And if we were to stand before the judgment seat of God, how could we ever stand in front of him? Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because he loved us, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us in the right hand, in the heavenly places in Christ so that at the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, 
so that no one should boast. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. The bad news of Romans 1, the work of Christ, the fact that we were sinners standing before the judgment bar of Christ before God, and that God has given you grace. And that grace doesn't just save you, and the grace doesn't just free you. What the grace does, if you look in the next section, it brings you in oneness. That alienated people, separated people from God, and separated people from each other are brought together in community. And Paul is just so overwhelmed with this that he ends chapter 3 with this amazing prayer. For this reason, in verse 14... I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he might grant you to be strengthened with the power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the height, the length, the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ever ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. See, it's against the dark backdrop of our lives that the gospel comes in, and that gospel brings us together, but that gospel should produce praise. I'll end with this. In chapter 4, he begins this practical section. He says, I want you to know your identity. You're a sinner, but you've been saved by grace. You're now part of my family. You're adopted. You're inherited. You have uh, the Holy Spirit sealing you. All of these wonderful blessings. And now he says, I want you to live out in the world who you are. And Paul says here in Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, urge you, he's begging you, walk. Walk means a daily manner of life. It means advancement. He says, I urge you, I beg you, walk in a worthy way. A worthy way of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I beg you, as your pastor, I beg you to keep the gospel focus in all that you think and do. I beg you to live out the gospel It disheartens me when I see some on Facebook and social media saying such vitriol against other people. It's wrong. I I see such pride and pompousness that is there. I see a lack of gentleness that is there. I've got one finger out, three fingers point back. I've got to look at this in my own life. Where do I lack patience? Where do I find myself dividing versus bringing together in the unity of the Spirit? Jesus said that they will know about him because of your love for one another. 
See, this church should be a community of believers that is going to be so radically different than every other community outside of Christ in this world. We should be such lovers of each other because we have a common narrative. The common narrative is bringing us together. And that common narrative, God wants to bring every tribe and every tongue together. The common narrative is going to speak against sin, clearly, but it is also going to speak about the salvation that is provided for us in Christ. The big thing for believers is this, and I think this is the reason why we are struggling today. We do not know what we believe, and we do not know why we believe it. I need you to know what you believe. I'm going to encourage you to read through Acts 19 this week. I'm going to encourage you to read through Ephesians this week. Lord willing, next week, I want to take Ephesians chapter 4, and I just want to work through some bullet points of ways that we are supposed to live in a crazy culture today. With all the confusion and all the chaos that is out there, this is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. That God has an answer for your guilt. It's Christ. God has an answer for your condemnation. It is Christ. But God also has an answer for brokenness that is in this world, and it's still Christ. Believe him. Love him. Know him. Display him. And turn this world upside down. So Lord, we um, pray today. That you would remind us of our tendency to follow crowds. Father, we lock in on political groups and then we just tune out the other person. We don't even want to listen to them. We never read from the other side. We never hear from the other side because, I don't know, maybe we're afraid. Father, we have an anchor for our soul and our anchor is Christ. Father, we need to know what the world is thinking today so that we can speak to the world's struggles. Father, we need to do that not in our own passion, in our own wisdom, but we need to do it in your wisdom and by your Holy Spirit strength. Father, the reality is, is that there may be some people sitting here today who have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That as I was reading through Romans 1, Father, that they're there, that, that they're, they're there. I pray that today that they would hear that they don't have to go along with the, the faulty crowd that is taking them to rumors that will take them to destruction, that will take them to nowhere. I pray that they would hear the bad news but then the beautiful good news of the gospel. I pray that they could find that they could have a real family in you and in your son and your spirit and in a community of believers. I pray that today would be the day that they would bend their knee and trust your son today. For those of us that do claim faith in your son, Father, I pray that we would become better students of your grand narrative found in your word. I pray that we would understand Genesis all the way to Revelation and understand this grand drama that you've given us right from the garden that you planned to send your son. Even before that, you planned to send your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us. Help us to see that this whole grand narrative is pointing us to Christ and what he has done. And then as you tell us through Paul and Romans, help us to be ambassadors out in the world to display your gospel grace for your glory, your honor, your praise alone.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close? I'm just going to use that same benediction that we had in the prayer, from Paul's prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people said, Have a blessed day.